Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, hi everybody. I'm here with Aaron Verncombe who has a PhD in the study of religion from the University of Toronto, where she currently teaches. She also taught at Princeton University, and she has a brand new book that just came out, I believe November 2nd, uh, which is called After Jesus Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of Jesus movements. Does all that sound correct to you, Aaron? That's all correct. And you even pronounced my last name right. That's amazing. Thank okay. you so much. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, I had to look at it. I was not pronouncing it right in my head. And then you know, <laughs> I had to take a closer look. Um, so I guess my first question is, I see this term Jesus movements. And that jumped out at me because I think that uh, you know, I grew up kind of Catholic. I went to Catholic schools and stuff, and we just don't think that much about those early days and how the re- and how Christianity maybe could have gone different directions and things like that. So, um, can you start out by just kind of explaining kind of what you tried to do with this book and what you mean by Jesus movements? For sure, that's a great place to start. So, Jesus movements. Um, is a term that we used really intentionally because when we started to look really closely at what was going on in the first two centuries of the common era, uh, what we found was just a, a huge amount of diversity. There was no such thing as, as organized Christianity the way we know it now or within Christianity, there's, there's no sense of, of churches or these much larger institutions. Rather, people were organizing themselves in all kinds of different ways and for all kinds of different purposes. So we use the term movements in the book, but there are also schools. There are also groups that organize themselves um, along the lines of philosophical schools. There were groups that organized themselves more as supper clubs. That was a really important form of organization and belonging in the first two centuries. So we find Jesus movements, but we also find Jesus clubs, Jesus association, wisdom schools. Um, So that term movements is really meant to reflect that, that really vibrant diversity that was happening in the first two centuries. And we discovered this, uh, to, to get back to your question about um, how the book came into being, I mean, we discovered this diversity through the work of the Christianity Seminar through the Westar Institute. That's the, the group that really um, enabled this book to come about. It's based on the research of the Christianity Seminar. And the seminar really wanted to look at the assumptions we've made about the history of Christianity for a really long time. Um, For most of our history, we've actually told the same story about Christianity, that there was this human named Jesus, and he did very specific things while he was teaching in the area of Roman Palestine. He was crucified by Rome. um, And then after his, his death, this whole succession of events happened, his teachings were passed down in this unified kind of way by 
um, the succession of, of organized leaders into what we now know as, as Christianity. And when we looked at that evidence, again, that that story really fell apart. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's that's how this project came into being. Interesting. Well, and I should mention that it looks like you have a few co-authors on this book and that this is sort of um, a project of multiple scholars and institutes that are that are working on this. When you are researching and trying to figure out the kind of early formation of Christianity, what kinds of sources and, um, you know, what, what kinds of sources are you relying on? Is there is it all written text? Is there archaeological kind of what is what is the approach? We tried with this project to take as many different forms of evidence into account as possible. Much of what remains to us now does remain to us in the form of writings. Some of these writings are texts that we might be familiar with today, like the Gospel of Mark, for example, or other writings that you'll come across in in a Bible. Um, But there were many, many, many more writings other than what we now have in what we call the New Testament. And part of our approach was to try to decenter or deprivilege the writings that we now have in the New Testament as evidence, because in the first two centuries, there, there was no New Testament. And different groups were using all kinds of different writings and using these writings in all kinds of different ways, writings from what we now know as the Hebrew Bible as well as what we now know as the New Testament, but both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament came into being as we know them in later centuries. So with that in mind, we tried to kind of even the playing field with the evidence so that we weren't privileging the texts that we're familiar with today and we're really taking into deeper consideration the different kinds of writings that held meaning for lots of different communities. There is some archeological evidence, but not as much as we might expect. Um, So for example, when it comes to the realities of crucifixion in the Roman empire, we have all different kinds of writings that testify to the widespread practice of crucifixion by Rome um, and huge number numbers of people who were crucified um, under Roman government as well. But there's very little archaeological evidence when it comes to crucifixion. The best evidence is actually one one small piece of heel bone. That's it, a, a piece of a man's heel that is still pierced by a nail. Um, it's quite uh, it's quite a, a disturbing uh, piece of evidence to be sure, but that one piece of evidence does testify to the violence and, and brutality of that particular form of death. But we would expect to see a lot more of that kind of evidence. So it can be tricky, you know, it can be tricky to um, to sort through what's available and, and figure out how we might be able to read it and interpret it when it comes to understanding the first two centuries. Interesting. So, and and these sources, I'm, uh, I'm presuming some of these sources or many of them are coming that the written sources are coming from the first century AD. Is that, 
Is that correct? And can you just kind of give listeners and, and really myself just an idea of, are we talking, were there tens of different, you know, kinds of gospels? And I mean, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with the idea that there are other gospels and growing up kind of in, in getting a sense of Catholicism and that kind of thing. It was kind of like, okay, we have the gospels in the Bible and everything else is it reliable? You know, obviously the church has sort of rejected in some way those other gospels. And so I'm just curious, you know, um, what kinds of, uh, are, are most of the sources gospels of followers of Jesus? Or is there anything that, that aren't of followers and what, how many of these things are we talking about? This is a complex question. <laughs> it's, it's a great question. It's a tough question. We can't know for sure how many writings were in circulation and, and different um, different scholars have very different opinions on, on even the number of gospel writings that would have been circulating in, in different places around the, the ancient Mediterranean. Um, I mean, yes, certainly we have the four canonical gospels preserved in the New Testament, Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there were many more gospels available and, and used in different ways by different communities. Um, and we don't know, we're still not sure how these documents would have circulated if they circulated, um, if different communities would have used more than one. There's still there's still so much we we don't know. And that's part of the project of this book as well, to really try to open us up to questions, questions that might make us uncomfortable and, and questions that might shake up some of our assumptions. There are some just fabulous gospel texts out there that were used by communities in different ways. One of my favorites is Gospel of Mary. Um, the central figure is Mary Magdalene, who has also taken on many different personas uh, throughout Christian history. But in Gospel of Mary, she is a leader. She's the leader of this particular community. And she's known not because of how she looks or because of any kind of allusion to sexual activity or relationship. She's known because she is the leader of this community. She's a leader. She's a teacher. She's a seer. Uh, she's really an amazing figure in this particular text. Some of the, the gospel writings from the early centuries are kind of confusing and strange. There's a gospel called Gospel of Peter and um, near the end of this particular writing, a giant uh, walking, talking cross emerges, <laughs> uh, which is a, a pretty unexpected phenomenon. Um, so lots of gospel writings for sure. Um, we have early letters as well. Most of what we have now would be the, the letters attributed to Paul. Um, but there could have been other letters circulating amongst other community networks as well. And looking closer to the end of the second century, we start to see the stories of the martyrs as well. So people who um, were persecuted in different ways under Roman authority um, and who witnessed their belonging to Jesus movements or, or parties in different kinds of ways. Um, and those, those stories become very, very important to these communities as well. 
were the we martyrs? have hymns. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, no, no, no. Go ahead, go ahead. Hymns. I, I was just gonna say we have we have hymns, we have songs. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think we also have to remember that the huge majority of the population could not read or write. So they would be experiencing writings in different kinds of ways. There's a really important oral tradition that we don't have access to anymore. So uh, when it comes to thinking about writings, you know, I mentioned earlier that we need to decenter the writings that we're familiar with now. But um, in many ways, I think we need to decenter the concept of writing itself because most of the population would not have been sitting down with a gospel text and reading through it, they would have been experiencing it in community, hearing it, performing it, using it for ritual or communal activity in different kinds of ways. So it's, it's a complicated question for sure. Were the, were the established historians of the day weighing in on any of this? I did a research project when I was in uh, college on some of the uh, contemporary references to Jesus and their it wasn't, there weren't many. My recollection was that uh, I think uh, Josephus maybe had referenced, um, but there, uh, um, I would have to double check on that. You would know. But uh, but anyways, I don't remember, you know, there being many references by Roman historians or, or others about, um, about Jesus's life. But I do wonder after Jesus died and you had these growing movement and like you said, a very diverse movement, was this something that was, when did it start to catch the eye of the, the more established, um, you know, uh, groups that were running things? So we, we do have, you're right there. The evidence is, is fairly scant. We do have references to, um, you know, I, I don't want to use the term Christian because there weren't Christians uh, in the first two centuries, but there were references to, in, in the book, we call them adherents of the party of Christus. Um, so early Jesus group members who were catching the attention of different local authorities for different reasons. So we have some really important evidence from um, a man named Pliny, who was a local governor um, at the turn of the second century. And he writes to the emperor Trajan um, because he has been confronted by these adherents of the party of Christus. And he, he doesn't know what to do with them. He keeps arresting them. He, he has arrested two female leaders, enslaved leaders, female enslaved persons, um, from a local community and uh, they're not willing to honor the emperor in the proper way. And that's the huge problem for, uh, for empire. And they're, they're just causing a lot of trouble. And he writes to the emperor because he, he doesn't know how to deal with them if they should be dealt with in a particular kind of way. Uh, so that's some really important evidence we have for uh, these communities both coming to um, larger scale attention, but um, it's also really interesting evidence for who was involved in these communities. So the fact that these two women, also enslaved women, had this leadership role in one of these local communities, I think is hugely significant. Interesting. And and you mentioned um, 
you mentioned briefly that they weren't yet called Christians. Can you elaborate on that a little bit and, and, um, and kind of what, uh, what they were called or what, was there any common, um, thread between these groups and did they interact? How did they think about each other? Oh, that's a wonderful question. How did these groups think about each other? That's, that's really tough to know. Um, some of them would have existed in local networks for sure. Um, especially the communities who are based on forms of organization called, um, they usually, they're called voluntary associations in a lot of the scholarly literature. They were just groups of people who organize themselves around a common interest and they were voluntary groups. So you could choose to join or not. Um, and the common interest might be a shared occupation. It might be a shared place of origin because under the Roman empire, all of these nations were being conquered and people were being displaced and moving around in all kinds of new and, and different ways. So it might've been a shared origin. It might be shared allegiance or honor being given to a certain God or, or deity. And to a certain extent, these associations had some local links. So um, given that this was an important form of organization for early Jesus groups, you know, some of these groups would have had connections that way. But given how different many of these groups are, it's, it's likely that they would not have encountered each other. And, and I wonder if they would have even recognized one another as being devoted to the same cause or, mm. um, or even the same God necessarily. Because again, we had these philosophical schools, we had supper clubs, we had um, parties with a more political bent. So how they would have considered each other, how they would have interacted with each other. I haven't mentioned household groups yet either. A lot of these groups were organizing themselves according to ancient models of the family and kind of deconstructing and, and using the ancient model of the family to create their own chosen families within certain households. So there are so many different forms of organization. It's hard to know whether they would have been intelligible to one another as as even doing the same thing. I doubt it. I doubt it. And they, they were, are, are all of these groups and all these people still identifying themselves as Jewish basically. And these are sex or these are kind of sex within Judaism. Is that the way to think about it? That's a really important way to think about it for sure. Um, not all of these groups would have, considered themselves as affiliated with Israel or the God of Israel, but many, mm. many, many of them did. Mm. Um, and Jesus himself, of course, was Jewish. Um, and belonging to Israel remains a really important form of belonging in the first two centuries in, in different kinds of contexts. So we have um, belonging to Israel um, in, in the sense of land and sense of living in a particular place. But again, this is a time of a lot of migration and dislocation. And there were uh, Judeans living all across the Roman Empire. And, and that in itself, living in diaspora, was a hugely important form of belonging in the first two centuries. And, and a lot of people found the God of Israel, um, the God of the Judeans, really powerful as well this really strong kind of 
moral center, uh, monotheistic approach to, to belief. So belonging to Israel, yes, was a hugely important uh, form of belonging in these groups for sure. Okay. And I, I want to touch on something else you mentioned too, because in reading the description of the book, it looked like um, uh, there was some information about the diversity of these groups and how some of their teachings and things were maybe a little bit different than than what we have now or the way they were interpreting gender and sexuality and morality specifically was mentioned. And can you elaborate on that a little bit and how there was this diversity among these groups? Well, gender is certainly one of my favorite topics and I mm. could talk about gender in, in early Jesus groups um, forever and ever and ever. Um, gender is a really important category of identity in the first two centuries um, for many different reasons. I mean, in, in some ways, the ancient Greek and Roman understandings of gender resonate with our own. Um, and gender certainly did a lot of damage to people in the first two centuries in the same way that constructions of gender still do a lot of damage to, to people today. Um, but it was hugely important as a, a tool for negotiation. Um, and what I mean by that is, is within, how, how can I get myself started here? So ancient Greece and Rome operated according to a one sex understanding, which meant basically that men were the one sex and women were incomplete men. Really delightful image there. Um, Aristotle actually said that women were deformed men. Um, the gender was kind of constructed according to a according to a vertical axis where you had men as the ideal complete body at, at the, the top of the axis and women at the bottom. And you can never quite get to the top. It was, you know, gender was a social construct then as it is now. Um, and so had everything to do with your social behaviors and relationships and um, really was separate from issues of, of anatomy. So men at the top of this axis were complete whole bodies. They, um, they, the Latin word for man, I like to use as an example, because it, within that one word man, you also have these other meanings of husband, of adult, as opposed to child, of soldier, of public figure active in city life. So when you break down just the word man, which is something that seems so simple, you, you start to see this kind of whole web of social relationships. Whereas women, women were considered essentially as, as the opposite. If the man was defined and a protector of boundaries, women were considered to be porous and always threatened by these external forces and, um, and violators of boundaries. And that's a really important concepts um, in these early groups, because we see all of these writings where women in particular seem to be performing this role of, of boundary violator, of kind of testing where boundaries are in order to, we think, better figure out how to find community and, and live under empire 
And there's no, you know, there's no one way that groups were doing this and, and you see gender being used in contradictory ways. So we have texts like um, the first letter of Timothy, which is now in the New Testament and, and women are policed in this letter as a way of, of making boundaries more rigid and defined of really policing community behavior through policing women's bodies. I mean, women are told to be silent. They're not supposed to really do anything in First Timothy. Whereas then we have a contemporary writing like Gospel of Mary and Mary is this amazing teacher and leader. She is the main teacher in, in this particular group. So, um, gender becomes a, a huge factor in, in how these groups are understanding themselves, um, who is able to take on leadership roles and in what capacity. Uh, we also have texts where bodies change gender, where bodies um, kind of go back and forth between conventional norms of gender um, in really exciting non-binary ways where bodies are really disrupting common notions of gender. We see this in the early martyr stories in particular, where the bodies that are supposed to represent man, for example. So man was also synonymous with courage. Courage was the key, um, the key male virtue. And we see texts that totally decenter that idea of, of male courage and instead show courage through these non-normative bodies that have been on the periphery of Greek and Roman life for so long, but then take on these key values. So it's, it's pretty exciting stuff for sure. So there was some element, at least for the time of more, I don't want to say rad radical ideas, not in a negative way, but just kind of outside the norm within the, cause I, th I think of the, the church, whatever grew out of all of this and became the, the, ch you know, the church as always sort of a patriarchal kind of mm -hmm. thing with men running things and, and et cetera, et cetera. And men can be priests and all of this kind of thing. Um, and, uh, it sounds like in these early days, not all of that was necessarily set in stone. And there was some more, uh, experimentation happening maybe with, with these different groups, because all the rules weren't, weren't settled yet. Is that the idea? They, the institutions weren't settled. It was a new thing they were almost creating. Absolutely. Experimentation is the perfect use, word to use for these ancient groups, I think, because they were, you know, they were trying to slip a toe over the line of a lot of the norms of, Roman imperial life, seeing what uh, seeing what they could get away with, seeing what would stick, seeing what would uh, adhere their communities as well, and help to bring people together. That's not to say that it was all resistance to empire, and empire brought with it certain benefits, um, but it, it also brought a lot of violence and a lot of disruption and a lot of trauma and figuring out how to live under those circumstances required sometimes overt resistance, but uh, oftentimes a much more subtle kind of uh, poking of the boundary, I guess. When um, at some point, I think most listeners will be familiar with on one level or another that the 
Roman Empire ends up endorsing Christianity. Um, does the book get into that process and what happened uh, and kind of how it became the religion of Rome and all of this? Or is it more focused on really the early days before all of that? We're just focused on the first two centuries. So the work of the Christianity Seminar continues, and we're now mm. doing the research into uh, the next few centuries, the centuries where we see that transition from this huge diversity of movements and schools and groups and associations into this institutionalized imperial force. So that work is still to come. There's just so much to explore and, and ask and consider in the first two centuries that we really wanted to give that time period its due. I would imagine this is uh, one of the most mysterious periods of Christianity, uh, you know, and, and one of the most fascinating to me, I've always been interested in startups and, um, you know, the founding of companies and things like that. And in the early days, this, these small, everything hinges on these small decisions or arbitrary things that might happen. You know, a letter could have been lost that we would know today and would be part of the, you know, religion everyone knows. Um, but it's not, you know, it's so, it's kind of fascinating to me. It's like uh, this religion, which became, you know, the largest religion in the world, uh, everything at that time kind of hung in the balance. Um, did you, I, I'm curious, uh, do, this might be outside of the scope of the book as well, but um, are you are you having any major takeaways about the historical Jesus individual, you know, the actual Jesus as a historical person mm -hmm. from all of this? I mean, you're, you're far more familiar with all of these other writings about Jesus. And I just wonder do you feel like you come away from this with a closer sense of who Jesus really must have been historically? You know, Jesus for me is not at the center of this book. Mm. And I, I hope that that doesn't alienate any potential readers. Um, <laughs> it, it was just that the the vibrancy of all of these different groups is, is really what I found most inspiring through doing this work. And certainly these groups, I'm, I'm not going to say that all of these groups would have had Jesus at their center either, uh, but certainly these groups were interpreting stories about Jesus in, in so many different kinds of ways. And, and understanding who Jesus was and um, kind of shaping Jesus' importance to their own communities in so many different kinds of ways. That's what I found most inspiring. And, and that's what really um, gives me a lot of hope, I think, for our own futures. The, the fact that these groups were willing to, to experiment, as you say, and um, all, all in the name of group belonging, I think, as well. And, and now when our own senses of, of belonging have been tested and, and continue to be tested in so many different ways, I, I think it's really inspiring to see how 
these groups were using conventional social forms and, and institutions and structures and and flexing them and and bending them and and just seeing how they could create a, a more positive, um, more human-centered life for themselves. That's my biggest takeaway. You know, I am. Um, I don't. I'm. I'm not Christian, but um, uh, you know, I, I can imagine if I was wanting to get in touch with the early days of the religion. You know, I think there's always this sense of going back to those earliest of times, but not just the life of Jesus, but also after the life of Jesus and, and how some of the ideas were interpreted and, 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 um, and some of the institutions were developed and things like that. I, uh, I think there's going to be a lot of interest in this, in this book and in the ideas that, that you are putting forward. Um, I guess one of my questions is, is, getting back to these basic controversies, I guess, that have been longstanding, the gospels, the the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the, what happened? Okay. So Jesus, um, Jesus dies. And then you, he had a following at that time and he had his closest companions and, and disciples. Um, I mean, from there, uh, you know, are, are the different disciples leading different kind of, um, going in different directions and starting different movements? Uh, and again, another complex question, the gospels that we have that are attributed to those figures, are they, my understanding was always that there was a lot of historical skepticism that they were actually written by those figures and that they were actually written decades later. So can you talk just a little bit about kind of the, really the true earliest days after Jesus's death and what and how these gospels came to be and what they, who wrote them? (laughs) (laughs) We have no idea. (laughs) We have no idea who wrote them. So you're right that even though now these writings are associated with particular names and usually with uh, followers or people who were close to Jesus, um, those attributions came much later. And we have no idea, really, how these writings came into existence. And, and that's been um, an ongoing scholarly project for <laughs> thousands of years at this point. And, and those questions are, are never going to be definitively answered. Um, the, the writings that we now have as the Gospels of the New Testament, we also don't have complete copies of those from the first centuries. Um, we have fragments that come from here and there and everywhere across the ancient Mediterranean. And um, there are scholars who their life's work is to look at all of these different fragments and try to piece them together, see where they're similar, see where they're different, um, and put them together into what we might call a, a cohesive um, or cohesive whole. Um, but it, again, like when you when you open the Gospel of Mark now, it, it looks like this kind of complete writing, but that's actually a project of all kinds of different manuscripts and fragments and um, little scraps of papyrus that that came together 
um, through the early centuries, but even now through the ongoing work of, of text critics and, and those who um, search for not the original because we'll never find the original forms of these writings, um, but at least some sense of a, a representative version of these writings. That's about as, as close as we can get. Um, the, the four gospels we have now have in some cases a lot in common. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, those three tend to be called the synoptic gospels. Uh, synoptic just means seen together because there are so many commonalities between them. And again, different scholars have different opinions on why those commonalities exist. Um, it does suggest that there's a relationship between those three. Most scholars now think that Mark was the earliest and then later writers, the later writers we know as Matthew and Luke used Mark to create their own stories, but they take their stories of Jesus in different directions. They have their own um, communal context and their own kinds of interests. So they shape the material in different kinds of ways. Um, so that's, you know, that I think it's, there, there are some texts that you can get called uh, synopses and you can actually see the four gospels in a line together and read them together and, and kind of compare where the stories are similar and, and where they're different. I think I'm at the risk of rambling about uh, the synoptic problem at this point in time. So you should probably stop me. Um, and I feel like I haven't answered the original piece of your question either. So you might want to remind me of that and get me back on track. Okay. Well, I think, I, I think I'm, it, it was a complicated question. I, that's something I need to work on <laughs> asking simple questions. They're all complicated um, questions though. Yeah. When we're talking about the answers stuff. are complicated enough without <laughs> the question being complicated. Um, but I think I was just kind of getting at, and I think you've, you've helped answer this, but just kind of how the logistically sort of these early figures in, in the Christian tradition were, I guess, evangelizing out mm -hmm. and were they starting kind of a lot of different um, of sort of their own take on this and um, where, where their interpretation of Jesus's life or they were uh, witnesses of Jesus and it kind of went from there um, and developed into these different movements. Is that, is that kind of a, I guess we would, I guess we don't know a lot of this maybe. We, we don't know. Um, and certainly that's part of what in the book we call the master narrative of Christianity, this master narrative that um, Jesus was here. He performed these uh, acts of wonder. He, he taught a group of followers when Jesus was killed by Roman authorities he delegated his teaching responsibilities to his followers. His followers then went out faithfully and they all faithfully communicated the same set mm -hmm. of teachings and the same message about his acts of wonder to their own communities. And from there, Christianity grew. From there, these early leaders became the bishops who continued to transmit these teachings faithfully. Um, and, and whether or not Jesus' followers um, became local leaders, you know, that's, that's an open question. But certainly that 
that kind of unified approach does not hold. We know that these different groups have very different, sometimes contradictory sets of practices. Um, and, and there was no, like, there was no thread that just went out in this single harmonious way from, from Jesus and beyond. That's a, a reading of later Christian leaders. So Christian leaders in the third and fourth centuries who wanted to project backwards this sense that Christianity was this harmonious unity from the beginning, um, because that had subjected these groups to a lot of critique, uh, critique from, from outsiders. So that was definitely a projection back onto the past rather than, you know, in, in this project, we're really trying to read history forward, not assuming anything about the future or, or what we now know about Christianity, just, mm. you know, starting with no knowledge, no assumptions, trying to unlearn the things that we know and, and seeing what we can learn forwards rather than reading these later realities backwards and asking some kind of how did we get to where we are now question. I love that approach. Uh, it's fascinating. That's definitely the approach I'm most interested in. Otherwise, it's almost like you're you're reverse engineering the history of the church and all of this. And it's impossible, you know, um, it's, it's hard either way, but that way seems even uh, more likely to lead you astray. So Absolutely. Uh, I love looking at it like first principles, basically what, what do we know, you know, what do we know and throwing out all the X, you know, the stuff we can't really rely on. So um, I, I guess one other question I have for you is just about, you know, my, my impression, um, and some listeners might have this too. I'm assuming if I think this probably some other people do as well, but, uh, you know, you have these figures, um, from Jesus's lifetime, uh, his followers, um, mostly men, some women, like you referenced who we're attributing these gospels and writings to and stuff like that. And then the next prominent figures in Christianity that I think of are these Roman emperors that decided to start making it the religion of Rome. Were there other um, historical figures during these centuries that emerged that maybe listeners aren't familiar with or that had an, a much larger role than people realize that, that you can point to or that you came across, um, you know, or, or was it mostly, or were they were they um, attributing everything back to these contemporary figures around Jesus? There, there are certainly some voices in Christian history that have been given particular prominence when it comes to our understanding of what Christianity is and, and how it developed. Um, there were, they're now called church historians. Again, church is a much later concept and, I don't like to use that word in this concept context, but we do have church historians. We have uh, translators of writings. We we have later bishops, you know, who exerted a lot of authority in their communities. Um, and certainly, some of these historians and bishops have been given particular prominence or a place of privilege when it comes to reading Christian history. Um, but again, 
when we take a closer look at the kinds of evidence that we've used, especially even from these really centered voices, when we take a look at this evidence again, it, it actually starts to, to fall apart and reveal a lot more um, flexibility and, and diversity in leadership and authority than we might previously have, um, have imagined. So one really central voice in the study of early Christian history has been this guy named Irenaeus. Irenaeus might be someone your, your readers are familiar with. One of the things he's, he's most famous for, which will connect to your, your question about um, our writings and gospels as well, he's particularly famous for stating that there are four gospels, that there are these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And um, he attributes these, the symbolic significance to them, but um, a lot of people look at this particular piece of Irenaeus writing and go, aha, look, there was this kind of canon of authority in this its earlier time. Look, Irenaeus says it. But when you look at the original writing and, and you break down what he's saying, you know, Irenaeus uses the term book in one case, um, writings or, or writing-ish in other cases, like he essentially calls Mark uh, 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 something written-ish. Um, so, you know, even that kind of evidence from the central voice that we've privileged for so long, when you look at it, you're like, mm -hmm. I don't know, is that the evidence we think it is? Is that really saying what we think about authority in, in these early groups? Um, but again, our work has been to try to bring to the forefront voices that haven't been heard before, voices that were incredibly important to at least the local community, maybe more like the fact that Mary um, in Gospel of Mary is, is such a prominent leader it's just wonderful to imagine the community or communities that would have celebrated this particular writing and held up a model of leadership like the one that Mary presents in this text. We have other great examples of leadership. So there's a, a story called Acts of Paul and Thecla. It's really more about Thecla than it is about Paul, but Paul is a much more recognizable figure and recognizable name. And uh, Thecla is one of those boundary violators who started in this very patriarchal social context. You know, she's referenced as um, a daughter and a fiance and um, she hears Paul teaching and she gives all of that up and goes out to, to teach uh, herself. Um, and, and again, we, we can't know if Thecla, we don't have historical evidence for Thecla that I'm aware of. But again, the, the fact that uh, a female leader was so prominent, this was a, a popular text for a long time, even though it's not one that many of us are familiar with now, Acts of Thecla, it, it was quite widely disseminated and, and used by different kinds of groups. So the fact that that kind of writing was popular, I think also testifies that there were other voices that were hugely important that just haven't been preserved uh, throughout the course of history. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. I can't uh, wait to read more about that in your book. I'll remind listeners that we're talking to Aaron Verncombe, who is a scholar of religion, 
and has a new book out called After Jesus Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of Jesus movements. And like I said, that just came out this month. Is there any major themes or uh, questions that I haven't touched on that that uh, you want to talk about? You know, I think this has been a really comprehensive discussion. I've really, yeah. I've appreciated the the complexity of the questions. Um, and I know that um, many of the questions, you know, we, we can't answer, but I think that's what's so exciting, right? And again, that speaks to the larger purpose of the book, which is an, an unlearning and, and an unknowing of things, like trying to go back to the beginning, not make any, not making any assumptions, not and not trying to read ourselves into history either. I, I think that tends to be part of our general historical project because we like ourselves. <laughs> we want to be able to find ourselves. We want to belong to history in, in different kinds of ways, but trying to not do that is, um, is disturbing sometimes. It's uncomfortable sometimes, but it, it's also really exciting because I think you open yourself up to all kinds of new questions and, and new potential for meaning. Absolutely. This has been a fascinating conversation. We've mostly talked about ancient Greece in this podcast, but we're starting to get into biblical type stuff. And this is a, this has been a great introduction to some of that. I appreciate your time. People can get your book on Amazon. I saw there's a Kindle edition as well. Is there anywhere else that you want to point listeners to, to follow your work uh, with this group of scholars or, or anything else? You can find more information about the Westar Institute online, Google Westar Institute. The work, again, of the Christianity Seminar is ongoing. We're moving into phase two, which is going to look at the, the next couple of centuries and take on those big questions about how these uh, hugely diverse groups became institutionalized under empire. So that's going to be exciting. So please make sure uh, you check out the Westar Institute. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron. And maybe uh, down the road, we'll talk again sometime. Sounds great. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.